Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Why Is This Happening episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast, associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. I am joined today by my colleague, Megan Ming Francis. Megan is an associate professor of political science and an adjunct professor of law, societies, and justice at the University of Washington. This year, she is also a senior democracy fellow at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and a racial justice fellow at Har Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Megan specializes in the study of American politics with broad interest in criminal punishment, black political activism, philanthropy, and the post-Civil War South. She's the author of the award-winning book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. And Megan is currently working on two new projects, The Crimes of Capitalism, which examines the role of the criminal punishment system in the rebuilding of Southern political and economic power after the Civil War, and How to Fund a Movement, which examines the history and future of philanthropy's complicated relationship with social movements. She's also the host of the podcast, Philanthropy and Social Movements. Hi, Megan. Hi, James. It's good to be here. Thanks a lot. So before we get into it, Megan, I, I thought I would ask you kind of a personal question. I, I haven't asked any of my guests thus far, uh, but I thought you would be a, a great person to answer, which is separate and apart from your identity as a scholar and scholarship. Just tell us kind of how you're feeling or what you're thinking about in this moment as a citizen and also a teacher and mentor. Yeah, I know. So first, I think Thank you for asking me that question. Um, right now, I'm feeling a whole lot of things, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I think the the one the one though feeling um, is um, to kind of a sense of being overwhelmed right now. That I think a, for a lot of us, 2020 was so much, right? It, like it was pandemic, and then layered on top of pandemic was obviously uh, months of appropriate racial justice protests um, that led to kind of. Uh, uh, I feel like a national awakening, a global awakening in many conversations. And then many of us were like, throw 2020 away and, and, and kind of in this hope, right, that 2021 would be not so much better, but it would at least offer relief. And then, James, on January 6th, it was like, uh, 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 like 2021 was going to be relentless. Um, and so, I, I feel like so many of us have have been barely holding things up, right? Um, whether that is in terms of family care responsibilities, our own mental and physical health um, work. And then it was like also dealing with a, a huge kind of crisis um, of government, of democracy and watching that play out and watching that continue to play out as well as seeing the, ne uh, the negligence of politicians around that. Um, and so for me, it's just this sense of feeling overwhelmed as a teacher who is right now um, teaching introduction to American politics to a group of over 200 students and needing to be able to interpret the events of what is going on right now. Um, and then finally, just as a regular person here, um, understanding because what I love, I'm not a political scientist because this is what pays the bills. <laughs> there are clearly other professions that I could be doing where I might be making more money. Um, but I, I'm a political scientist because I really love it. I, I, I truly enjoy researching about American politics and teaching um, to students. And so just as a person, it, it feels that what I really love right now is under attack. Um, and I don't know when we're going to get out from under that. Well, 
One of the reasons I'm excited to have you today is that I think you're a rare talent in our discipline in political science who not only studies contemporary political life in America, but in your research and teaching, you argue that to understand the present, we have to put that this moment in context of the historical development of political, social, and economic institutions in the US. Mm -hmm. um, the problem of this episode is why is this happening? And I thought you would <laughs> be able to lend your both contemporary and historical lens to answer that question <laughs> with respect to a number of acts of the 2020 election. Um, so I thought we would might maybe go in chronological order and, and starting with uh, the events last week in Washington, D.C., the riot uh, on January 6th in the Capitol. And my first question, Megan, is how as a scholar would you define what happened last week? And is this new in American political life? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so the events of January 6th, how do I describe that? I mean, there's obviously, right, there's been, I, I could say a lot in terms of um, kind of, I, I guess, the shorthand or the way that I have been talking about it um, to my students, um, as well as friends and colleagues, um, is a mob um, of white supremacists came to the Capitol, felt like um, what was happening in terms of the changeover, um, a, a fair, <laughs> a fair election, um, was that the results of that election were not actually true. And they wanted to, and they came to DC um, and sought to, to uh, basically take over government. Like, I mean, that is now obviously all the news reports that are coming out. That is very much true. They felt entitled that the results of that election were not true, that they were illegitimate results, that the political system and many of our po politicians were illegitimate. And this is something that like, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this, right? Trump has, the, oh, he's been on a more than four year campaign to delegitimize our storied political structures, right? And the ways that like, and our political system. That if it's not within the ways that he imagines what politics uh, like could be and should be, then it's, then it's illegitimate. And so right now, kind of like what, what we had on January 6th was in so many ways, like people were like, you know, they were like, oh, I can't, I'm shocked. I'm so surprised about what is happening. And like, you know, a number of us were like, are we really that surprised? Shocked, but not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it still was in terms of like to see the images, even for my, somebody like myself who studies racial violence, it, the, 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 the. The visuals were still shocking, but surprise, no, right? Like this seems to be the appropriate bookend of his presidential tenure, right? Like yeah. him coming to office, him campaigning. And then at the end, like, I'm like, <laughs> to, some of my, to some of my colleagues, I'm like, did you really think that he was just, that he was just gonna go quietly in the night? <laughs> that is so- He's crazy. always said exactly what he intended to do. I mean, that's the thing. It's yeah. like, you don't have to do gymnastics right. to figure out what he wants. He actually just told you. <laughs> he, he told you, he said, we go, he said, he has said, we're gonna take it with force. That this is the result that no, we don't believe you. He has said everything. It's not like, oh, like you gotta like find the pieces of the missing puzzle. No, he's like throwing you the pieces. And then for some reason, you're like, I don't want to see the pieces of the puzzle because it doesn't comport with your ideas of how government should operate, right? But, but again, Trump has been that president who has violated all types of norms. That's part of his cachet. That's part of the reason why people like him. They're like, you know, he, there are people, he, he, he marches to the beat of his own drum. 
he's a he is the real maverick oh okay people <laughs> right like he's clearly violent so nothing like it has been so predictable um to the extent obviously now we know is that law enforcement had gotten had had received word that there were these types of threats that this that this so-called marching demonstration was going to turn violent and so there's so much that is predictable i think for me even even as somebody whose main focus is the black freedom struggle american politics and 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 and, and um social movements uh, oh and the carceral state i was still really surprised james um no even knowing all that i know about racist policing and law enforcement in this country i was still surprised at the treatment of the mob of, of 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 members of the mob in comparison to the protests that we saw around the movement for black lives as well as the way that they just let them ransack the capitol like whoa i i i'm still come to terms with what happened and with the acquiescence um from 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 police well okay i want to get to that but i want to ask you a previous question or a prior yeah, question yeah, yeah. which yeah, is go back. <clears throat> So going back a little bit, you know, I I have observed um, uh, seats of government and riots against politicians in, in the other countries that I work in and study. I've never seen it at that level in the United States. So so mm -hmm. it was unprecedented to see this mob take over the Capitol. Um, mm -hmm. However, armed, armed insurrection by Americans, by domestic terrorists against <laughs> yes, the American yes, yes, yes. government yes, is yes. not unprecedented. In fact, that, I mean, no. so I wonder if you no. can sort of put the armed insurrection against our seat of government in sort of historical context and kind of <laughs> remind our audience that, that this is actually as American. I mean, it's so American that it, it, it happened, you know, more than 100 years before the United States was even founded. Right, right. I mean, this is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so... I'm teaching American politics right now. We just did like the framing period, right? And we just did the Boston Tea Party, Shades Rebellion. In these moments you in do which that like- Whiskey Rebellion is one of my favorite. Oh yeah. <laughs> I did not do the Whiskey Rebellion with the students because there's so much ground to cover, but yes, Whiskey Rebellion also. But like in terms of the, I mean, the, the idea, I mean, the important point about kind of the earlier period here is that there are previous antecedents, right? That is, that this doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, that kind of armed insurrection about people um, rising up and saying, and, and, and stating very clearly, right, with, 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 with weapons, um, that, that this is their vision of government um, and that or and or that government should go in a different direction and or that they strongly disagree with the elite in control of government and they want a different future. That is, that's a completely a, a normal part of our political system. It may not be a part of our kind of contemporary political system right now. And especially for that being taking place at the nation's capital, right? Like I think that for people without the longer kind of perspective of history, it, it was yeah. very alarming, but like, yes, this of course has happened before. Well, and I think there's two kind of curious um, benchmarks now. So one, the article of impeachment was incitement to insurrection. Okay, that puts, I mean, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, that actually puts him in league with Robert E. Lee and Jefferson <laughs> Davis. 
right? Uh So that's Uh number one, Uh right? Insurrection against the United States is what the Confederacy was about. Number two is I think we need to recode what our understanding of armed insurrection against the United States government includes. It should include um, uh, Ruby Ridge and the Branch Davidians and uh, the Uh Oklahoma City bombing and this Clive and Bundy idiot, you know? And it's like, Uh yeah, this was 30,000 people. It wasn't just Timothy McVeigh and a couple other people. And the scale of the, and like you said, it's in DC, you know, obviously many people killed to say uh, Oklahoma City, but domestic terrorism in the United States, <laughs> this is, so, yeah. so it's like the, there's the armed insurrection part, but there's just the domestic terrorism has been in every single year. I mean, look at the number of hate crimes that went up after, uh, what was it, 2015, 16, after he was elected the first time. You know, it, right. it, it's just right. to me that, that America, like the media doesn't sort of immediately go to those being the benchmarks by which their audience would understand this. And instead it's sort of like, oh my gosh, this is so new. This is so different. We don't know what to do about this or how to think about yeah, it. Yeah, but I think, right. But I think, I mean, I've been, I've been trying to actually spend a, lo- a lot of time over the past few days on this question about why for some it's surprising, not for you and I, <laughs> but for some it's surprising um, and why for so many of us, it's shocking. And then the other part about kind of the clumsiness in the media in helping the larger public understand and or contextualize the events that took place on January 6th. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is that I feel like there is this continual um, misunderstanding of the role of white supremacist violence in this country, the kind of the roots of um, insurrection, especially white insurrection in this country. Um, And I, for the most part, right, like I think one of the things that it's been said by some, but I feel like not enough, and this is just in terms of the last four years, which is Charlottesville. Um, And many people for whatever reason have forgotten that. And the thing about, the reason why I'm bringing it up right now in relation to the events that took place on January 6th is because there's ways that like, like a lot of Americans, especially a lot of white Americans treat um, kind of these different moments, right? The Timothy McVeigh moment as aberration, as like these discrete moments that are, that don't tell us something deeper about the way that our political system operates and about the way that white supremacy continues to manifest itself through institutions and through the actions actually of elites as well as ordinary citizens. Um, And so what happened in Charlottesville, people are like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. This is not who we are, right? Like still in this moment, even Biden's right now, this is not who we are. We must get to actually who we are because this is not who we are. But what if it is who we are, (laughs) right? Like, like of course it's who we are. I mean, it's not, yeah, I, yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, that's right, just, yeah, a, right, I think, right. I mean, that may not be who all 330 million people are, but this country was founded on slavery and genocide. I mean, that's, that's okay to admit because yeah. it's true. That doesn't, I mean, that's not, right. just, I, yeah, I mean, lots of, I mean, lots of countries have, <laughs> there's a lot of bad people in the world and all countries have done bad things. Recognizing that doesn't, is just seems to be, need to be a really obvious thing. And also if you want to become better, you have to admit what you've done wrong, right? I mean, that's. Well, what? That's like psych 101. Right, yes, absolutely. So one of the things I want to ask you, I'm not going to take away your show because this is your show, but then like, but so why? Why in journalism? Why in political science? Is there such a, right now in this moment when it is so clear that white supremacist violence is a problem, there is still, James, I feel like people are like, (laughs) oh, but it could be. For whatever reason, there are people still clinging on to like white grievance politics, white anxiety, 
trying to find like in terms of well not all the insurrection is for white supremacists okay as like one of my friends like tweeted out like t today not everybody at the lynching was a kkk member you guys sound crazy right like i i guess i'm just trying to figure out why why does there still seem to be such a way that people try to like like skirt move around like and and, and like really talk about like the role of racism and white supremacy in the event well let me let me offer an answer and then get your thoughts okay. on it because this was <laughs> okay okay <laughs> uh, embedded in my answer is a is a is a fourth question i was actually going to ask you which is to be honest, and maybe this is a sign of progress in a weird way, I actually think like white coastal liberals, elites, um, academics, people in the media, I think they don't believe that somebody could truly be so racist that yes! when they wave a Confederate flag and they take over the Capitol, they literally are like the grandmaster wizard of the KKK from the 1920s. Like that is literally who they are. I think they don't believe that that's true, okay? Mm -hmm, so. Mm -hmm. I think what they believe, which could be true for some of the people that were there, or like these are basically like school shooters. These are mentally ill people. These are people who like, they don't even have the cognitive capacity to do the hard part of thinking through why they hate black people. They just saw somebody waving a Confederate flag and picked it up. Um, and they're just like playing with something that they don't understand and they're uneducated or they're low class or all these things. And so one of my questions for you is going to be, do we want to look at all 30,000 of these people as sort of being the same type of racism or the same level of white supremacy? But here I think is the real issue, Megan, is uh -huh. let's say there was somebody, let's say there was somebody who was at that march who really isn't racist. Okay. Like, let's just say that that's possible. Okay. Let, let, let's say they, they truly were not racist. They I'm truly gonna, thought I'm the gonna, election I'm gonna, was stolen. I, I'm gonna just for the sake of argument. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to allow you this imagination. Go ahead. Please proceed. Okay, just for the sake of argument, let's just say there was somebody okay. there who was like, I, all I care about is elect, uh, election integrity. I believe what the president has to say. Okay, and let's say that they're not a racist. Uh -huh. At what point when they were surrounded by people with Confederate flags, don't tread on me, to say nothing of all this disgusting anti-Semitic stuff about Auschwitz uh -huh. and six uh -huh. million on it. At what, even if that person were there, at what point does that person then think it's okay to stay there? Like, at what does that person say, yeah. actually, you know what, I was here for the election integrity bit. This doesn't seem like the election integrity bit. This seems like the racist and the anti-Semitic bit. And so to <laughs> me, it's like, I've been, I've, been at, I've been in mass events where things got out of hand and people started doing things that right. I didn't like and I walked away. Like, it's not that complicated, right? Mm -hmm. So my, mm -hmm. my question for you is like, these 30,000, 30 or 40,000 people then marched to the Capitol, who among them is not endorsing what is clearly on display, which is the desecration of our constitution and our flag and our institutions to replace them with the Confederate flag, the Trump flag and anti-Semitic garbage about the Holocaust. Oh, it doesn't okay. make so sense wait, what's, the question? what's the question? So the question yeah. is like, it, it, so, so, so I think the answer to your question is I think the media believes that they would characterize the mob differently than you do. But then I, the question I ask for you is, I mean, are there different oh. types of people in this mob or are they all really just of the same ilk? Because I just have a very hard time believing that you could be that close to that many symbols of mm -hmm. hatred mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. genocide mm -hmm. and racism yeah. that even if you showed up at the very beginning to say, I did, I, I'm protesting the election, you're going to be like, no, this is actually really not what I signed up for. And you would leave. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, 
Of course, I mean, in terms of the scale of white supremacy, there is a scale. There's some who are more, some who are less. But in terms of everything that has been a kind of the culmination of these past four years, everything that was on display as soon as you arrived at what was initially of like a, a rally, a demonstration, et cetera, like you probably would have left if you did not at some level at like, in terms of the, the, the wide scale that is, let's say racism or white supremacy, if it, if, if that, if that kind of the, the, like you, you at least had to be okay with that, like one tail end of that scale to actually stay there. Otherwise you would have left. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, in terms of people who are like, no, I just really think that it was a rigged election. Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're at least okay, right? You're at least okay with the anti-Semitism. You're, you're at least okay with the racism that is full on display here. Um, so, yeah. I, Megan, let me ask you about the Confederate flag. Sorry, the Confederate battle flag. Am I in a feat coastal Caucasian, educated, liberal, <laughs> when I ask the question, does it mean anything else? Are there any uh, complications about what it means? Is there any lack of clarity about what it means? No, what do you mean? There's a, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, no, we all know what it means, right? In terms of like, people are like, I mean, in the South sometimes, again, because I, I did my undergrad there, part of the defense that some try even though like they're not being they're not being honest is that this is right the thing this is heritage this is not hate right that that's the phrase it's heritage it's not hate we all know exactly what you mean when some when people have a confederate flag yeah. bumper sticker when they fly the confederate flag when they post it in their window we know exactly what it means and the reason why they love it right now is because it is so great to be so open right like trump has a kind of given permission for people who like were not totally like believe these things and were perhaps were not as visual with it to now be totally out in the open um, with waving and flying Confederate flags. But who waves a flag of the losing side of a war a hundred, you know, whatever, more than 150 years later, even if it wasn't about slavery? Like, let's just say they had an argument and there were no slaves in the picture. They lost the war. Like, why would they continue to wave that flag so many years later? I, I like, I can't think of a single other country where that happens. Oh, like, I know. It, it just reinforces yeah. to me. To me, it just reinforces how much they reject everything that's happened since I don't know 1865. So it's like, well, why live here then? I mean, you don't have to live here if you don't want to. Like, yeah. And, I mean, and you blame immigrants right. for wanting to come here. Fine. Well, if you if they want to come here and they have a good reason and they're going to support institutions, then why should you get to stay here? Then if you're going to reject all, all of our institutions and if you're so upset that you that your side lost in the war, like don't be here. I mean, but I but but I think the reason why people still right fly it, why it's still a source of pride for so many is that I think that there is still a sense in some places in the South that they can succeed secede from the United States. This is something going to school in Texas that people were like, well, like, like the United States is lucky <laughs> to have Texas as part as like as a state in the union. Right. But like, and so I think that I, mean, I lived in I, Texas. It's a very Texan thing to say though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just like, like, okay. And I remember, I mean, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, and so I, and I'll never forget my intro American politics class. And I had these two students um, and we, at one lecture, we're talking obviously about the civil war. 
And this one student raises his hand and he's like, what is like, what, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this word before. <laughs> right. You know where I'm going with this. And, and the professor is like, what are you talking about? And then he like explains the civil war. And then the, the student is like shocked and sits back and is like, I've always been taught about the war of Northern aggression. Right. Um, and then another student piped up and was like, yeah, I, I heard I learned about the war of northern aggression. I've never heard about the Civil War in any of my textbooks. Right. So like this was I mean, I'm not that old. I'm older, but I'm not that old. Right. And, and like this was in 2000. Um, and so there is, I feel like, a way that kind of where we are now in terms of the end of Trump's presidency, there there's been a like a long attempt. In, in different places for people to delegitimize government, right? And say that like the like the these different states and the national government are not, are illegitimate. They did not win this war correctly. Um, and that people are waving and are still flying the Confederate flag in some ways as a protest and a reminder of all the wrong that was done, right? The lost cause. <laughs> um, and there's a sense, you know, in terms of that, that like, I think so many of us today celebrate the fact that there are more people included who can participate in voting, right? People of color and women. Call but us for old many fashioned, people, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. But for many people, I think that there's still, not I think, I know that there is still a sense of deep, deep loss that this kind of expansion of the franchise actually meant, meant a considerable loss um, in political power and in economic power to, to many people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think so to me, like in some ways the flag is a symbol of what could have been in a different world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah. I, that's that's a very inter interesting perspective. So, <laughs> so getting back to the sixth, I want to get back where you were before on okay, policing. Okay, okay, okay. So, okay, so okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I'm gonna read two narrative statements that came out of last week, and then have you just kind of respond to them. Okay, so oh, uh -oh. Th these were two narratives, two narratives that I heard. The first narrative okay. I heard is that the, the Save America rally and subsequent riots similar to Black Lives Matter and protests for racial justice that we saw last summer, both the left and the right threatened violence in equal measure. Okay, that's narrative number one. Narrative number two, had the rioters been Black, they never would have gotten as far as breaching the Capitol. So one is crazy and two is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Tell us why. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm being set up here, James. No, um, no, no. I'm okay. just trying to be a little bit more Socratic. I'm trying to be Socratic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no. I, I appreciate this. No, on the first one, there's been this way, and I've seen this not even, I feel like, in the moderate left, but the, I mean, not the moderate right, but like the hard right and saying, look, there's violence in the BLM protest. And yeah, we kind of can concede that there was violence. In this, in the in in the January sixth events that that took place, and and they're the same. So why are people up in arms? It's like, well, there's a lot of things that, that are different <laughs> about the two protests, right? One in terms of the purpose, actually, of the protest wasn't to go and ransack and destroy Capitol building and then to capture and hang the vice president. <laughs> Right, that like that was that was one side, and then the other side was trying to fight to live, 
and a right for, if not, if not like equal treatment, which is of course impossible because of the, because of the racial order in this country, but to fight for more fair policies. Um, and so that like people of color who are arrested and, or who just get stopped, do not die. Like th these are very different types of protests, right? Um, in terms of also, a, a, you know, a, there's a number of also scholars in Black studies and American ethnic studies who focus on the use of violence um, and focus on the use of rage, right? Um, but we shouldn't think that like all violence, just because one group uses violence, it's this, it means the same when another group uses violence, right? That the reasons why that violence, let's say, let, for example, in Minneapolis, the police department went up, in, went up in flames, right? That in part because nothing has changed substantively in the killing of black people in this country, right? And that in terms of, there was this way that kind of the arguments where people are like, oh my goodness, property damage has actually occurred. Look at all the property damage that has actually occurred, right? As a way to say that, like, are you guys more upset that property damage has occurred or are you, and, and or why don't you have that same energy with the loss of life of black people, right? To try to help make that like, to help make people kind of to see that very clearly, that even in their outrage about the violence, which was a violence against property, that in terms of that they didn't, that this nation did not have that same energy and that same concern around the literal killing of black people. Now, the violence that took place in the Capitol, some of it was about property, and it was also about the literal loss of life of a police officer and people who were part of the so-called mob, right? So like, these are very, the, the, the reasons of both of these, of one, a mob, and two, a protest are different, the, kind of the origins, the, the foundational origins of them. And then in terms of the use of property damage, I think in both of them are very different and we should be clear about that. Now, in terms of the second one, oh my goodness, right? That there is absolutely no way, right? I mean, and we see this, you don't even need to like wonder <laughs> because how many pictures have come out of um, the BLM protesters? Uh, that have taken place in the spring and summer of this past year, right? Like in terms of- and Washington whether posted it's just like, like a side-by-side -side yesterday, didn't they? I thought it was really cool the way they did the side-by-side -side of BLM versus Ooh. the mob. Oh, I want to see that. I'm going to check that out. Thank you. Yeah. I'm Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, 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 that's great. Um, but like in terms of peaceful protests, people like just, uh, whether it was singing, yoga, um, quietly marching, holding signs, right? And then, but like, and then being tear gassed and then being shot at, right? Like not even doing anything. And then we see a whole other crowd of people who mm -hmm. are literally pushed past. And in one instance, now we know, took a police officer's gun and shot him with it, <laughs> right? Like, mm -hmm. like there's, in part because of all of the incredible literature and, and scholarships, some of which are my colleagues at the University of Washington and colleagues at other institutions that talk about like the intersection of blackness with policing and blackness with law enforcement in this country and the way that like that like fuses together, there is no, and the, and there is no way that, that a group of black people would have gotten that far because blackness is always criminalized 
and viewed as a threat, right? Whereas white people are not viewed immediately by law enforcement as a threat. We have endless studies on driving while black, right? On on walking while black <laughs> um, to like help make this very point um, that we saw clip. And then one of the things, this is the last point I'll say on this, that I found so interesting is that because of the way that race works in our country and the way that race works through policing, that one of the things that I have found so fascinating is some of the statements given by law enforcement after the riot that took place on January 6th. Statements such as, I couldn't believe that I was seen. I didn't think things would get that bad. I'm so shocked that the people that we are arresting look the way they do. I mean, because they are they are saying what so many of us kind of have always thought, but like their own shock, <laughs> one, about who the crowd was, how violent they could be. Um, and then the people that were actually being arrested actually lays on top of so much of the scholarship um, in criminal that has focused on kind of the carceral state. Well, one thing that I think is really hard in terms of like the counterfactual is it wasn't 30,000, it's not just 30,000 white people mob versus 30,000 black people. It's 30,000 white people who were all armed in a country with a gun mm -hmm. epidemic. So the real mm -hmm. counterfactual is not 30,000 um, white armed people trying to take over something against 30,000 peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. It's 30,000 armed black people or armed right. oh, yeah. uh, Arab Americans right. or Muslim right. Americans. And when, when yeah. is the last time that 30,000 armed black people no. tried to storm the institutions of government in this country? Because it hasn't happened. Because we would exactly. be- Exactly. <laughs> like, like, that's one of the things I think um, political scientists at Stony Brook, Julian Wombo wrote a really like thoughtful piece, which was that like a lot of the articles that had come out had kind of like posed this question about like, what if, um, the crowd had actually been black and he and he was like, but that's actually impossible because it never could have been. And that, like that, that the idea about like, like you mentioned here, James, which is that which is absolutely correct, is that it's not just 30,000. It's is it and it is it 30,000. And if they were armed, which is that that's just never going to happen because like of who this country actually is. I mean, the closest, right, the very closest that we get, and it's not an armed at all, it's literally armed defense of Black people in the Bay Area, right, in, in, in Reagan's California, right? This is the Black Panthers, of course, that I'm talking about, right, is that there was so much in terms of police violence in Black communities that part of the Black Panthers was that we are going to carry guns because it was it's open carry at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. That we're going to carry guns and make it clear and we're going to learn the law books and we're going to know law and we're going to like present as like gun toting black people, which obviously a lot of white people. Right. At that time, like like felt was threatening um, in the in, in the 70s. And so but like what we know after that is like white people were like, whoa. And this wasn't even in terms of Black Panther, <laughs> like like coming forward, going to the state capitol. It was just that Black Panthers, Black people with guns visible were actually out and about, about minding their own business and protecting their neighborhood. And that for white people in California, Reagan was like, oh, whoa, we must pass these new laws. We can't do open carry anymore. 
this is too violent. Like, so the, yeah. So anyways, I say that as a little bit of context where it's like, that's like the closest visual scenario that I can even think of. And that is so yeah. far from, from like this visual. Well, it's funny that you say that because I was watching the news last night and as we get more and more kind of evidence uh, from people's cell phones that they posted video to social media of the people mm -hmm. that were there and then posting it. I actually said out loud yesterday, I said, if this had been the Black Panthers, they never would have been dumb enough to film it all and post it to social media. Like how bad are these people at, at criming that they're now <laughs> literally posting the evidence of their crime and 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 shouting it? Like it's it's suggests either such rampant criminality on their part or uh -huh. stupidity or just like they I mean they really do live in a different world or maybe I don't know maybe they all think they're going to get a pardon I don't know but I'm like how stupid how bad can you be a criming that this that you're going to you're going to film yourself committing a crime and then put it on social media after I mean, I this is a week that, later this is this is a yeah, week later this is when I mean, they know the FBI is looking into all this I think this is though I I mean I find I have found all of these I've been following these on social media um, James, I found them so interesting to me about what it reveal, reveals about one, white audacity, but also in terms of the ways that so many white people really don't think that they're ever going to get caught. Like, it, we know that there's a type of, that there's law enforcement, but like, they have lived under a regime and in a world in which like, they don't get caught. And in which for the most part, they are right. <laughs> and so like they couldn't like they couldn't even fathom needing to hide what they were doing because they felt so right in what they were doing, and that like they would not actually be made to be respond accountable for their actions. Like it's it's this weird to me, it says to me a lot about the ways that whiteness operates um in this country and also like through law enforcement part of it is all is obviously stupidity but like it's not just in terms of blanket stupidity it's i think a a, a belief because of experience that you're never going to be accountable for your actions mm -hmm. so well, so let's anyway. so let's move a little bit further back in time because i want i wanted to ask you this sort of like if we were to go before before January 6th, but after the election, this sort of a base of Republican supporters or Trump supporters who believe everything he said about election fraud, which is you're absolutely correct. This was actually the cleanest election in, in probably, well, certainly in a long time, certainly compared to 2016. Um, what, what explains the propensity for so many Americans to believe this stuff? Is it just like, I mean, is, oh. it, is, is it whiteness? Is it is it just they love Trump? <laughs> is it that they're you know uneducated or they're mentally ill? Like, what? How would you attribute the sort of belief in this when all? I mean, yeah. according to his own lawyers, there's no evidence, right? Like, it's not, and they right. didn't even try to fake evidence. <laughs> like, they didn't even do it like a good authoritarian would do, which is like you know right. just gin stuff up. So it's like, what? How do you think about that between just like all the lies that people believed between you know say November fourth and January fifth? Oh, it's so crazy. I mean, we, we've used crazy too much in, in, in our conversation, but like, I mean, the, the lies is another thing that I'm trying to wrap my mind around, right? Because he got more votes than any other Republican presidential nominee in history, right? And, and obviously not those seven, I don't know what the number is now, 74, 75 million people, not those, not, not that many people 
actually believe in all the lies, right? Like there's obviously a smaller proportion that believe in the lies, but a good number of people, right? Believe in election fraud. I mean, you're the election expert here, but believe in that fraud that has happened, that it was a stolen election. Um, I think some of it is whiteness. I think the other part though goes to that, again, kind of what we, what we were speaking about earlier, Trump is somebody who from the very the beginning sought to delegitimize all of our institutions, right? And so, um, and, and also this idea that like, in some ways, if elections were not what he, the result that he wanted, then they were delegitimate, then they were not, then they were not correct and, they, and it wasn't fair. Um, so I think for me, part of it is that this has been a four year campaign for him. So I think that part of the reason why some people believe so strongly is that they actually no longer believed in our election system, that he had so like deteriorated it with his, with his arguments and they believed in him, right? And I think for like, for a lot of people, he was a weird type of kind of cult leader um, and whatever he said was true. And I do think that one of the, you know, one, one thing that I, media isn't my, isn't my focus, but I think one of the, one of the reckonings that political science and journalists have to have is that there has been like, in terms of the disinformation spin, I can't imagine if what I did um, and all I did was to listen to some of these news stations to be in some of these like chat rooms <laughs> um, and to be inundated by everything, like in a, an alternate universe where actual facts do not matter, right? That's one of the things I think a lot of us, right? Especially political scientists were like, if you just talk about the facts, you tell people the facts. It's like, no, but some people resist that. So um, yeah, so I think that one, it's Trump um, who has, Sought to delegitimize the entire system. People believe in him as a cult leader. And then the vacuum um, of the disinformation cycle, I think, which has led to so many people believing in these claims of fraud. Um, I think that's a part of it. So whiteness, yes, but also like disinformation. I mean, one of the things that's really striking after January 6th, what if Parler, Twitter, what if all of these like Facebook, what if they crack down? not just on Trump, but on some of these very obviously hateful room side things. What if they had done that earlier, right? Mm -hmm. um, what if they mm -hmm. didn't allow some of these- Well, he never would have been elected. I, I don't think he would have been elected. I mean, or- Oh. Well, well I mean, the first time. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, but if, but- I mean, the other thing here, here's an, here's an aside. We don't have enough time to talk about this, but this is something I, I, I'm just gonna get out in this podcast because I haven't said this publicly yet, James. <laughs> Is that the other thing that Say we it. also need to contend with, <laughs> with is white evangelicals, is the church. Like this is yeah. one of the things I have people in my family who are been like, there has this is he has been so supported um by by evangelicals. And that has been like part of his base. Um, and believe very strongly that in so many ways that he is ordained. Um, and that he is somebody who is God's choice. 
so I also think that like there is a way that I yet have not thought through because I am no one's religious scholar, Jane. <laughs> but like there is like some oh, fusion also. <laughs> what? Well, have you read Michael Cohen's book? What is it? Disloyal. As a no, he recounts. Have you read it? Okay, you got to read it, Megan, because he recounts when those evangelical leaders went to Trump Tower. I think it, it, it was before 2016 when he was like deciding to run. And he had this meeting with them and it's like where they put their hands on him and he took the picture at the board table or whatever. It's oh, like a really- yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. So you, Michael Cohen's recounting of it is like Trump comes out of that, uh, comes out of there and he's like, I can't believe they bought it. He's like, I can't believe they're dumb enough to believe the things oh I'm saying. Oh my God. Oh, totally. And, yeah. and yeah. yeah, and so, and he's just like, I can't believe they're this stupid. Don't they know who I am? And it's like, mm. God, if Donald Trump has outsmarted you, You've got some serious problems. Um, but I think, I mean, the other thing is, but Megan, this is one that has never made sense to me. Uh, black evangelicals don't support him. It's white evangelicals. So if we hold evangelical constant, I'm not saying black evangelicals aren't more conservative than like, uh, you know, other white uh -huh. people or uh -huh. other parts of the black community, but black evangelicals uh -huh. still by and large uh, vote for the Democratic yeah. Party. So yes. what is going on with white yes. evangelicals? Uh, it's, it can't just be that they're evangelical, right? Um, no, and, no. And no. why do they double down no. on somebody who is so clearly not, I mean, of anybody who's ever been president? They call him a baby, they is, call him a baby Christian. You know this, right? They call him a baby Christian. What is baby you know, supposed to mean in that? Like he's- That we're all on a different journey in our in our journey to be Christians. And that some- <laughs> Well, he doesn't have that much longer. I mean, I, I, I would- <laughs> I mean, You know, you know. So anyway- He's in his 70s. Part of yeah, I know. I know. Anyways. <laughs> well, let, let's go back to election day. Uh, let's go back to election day itself. I mean, I know it's like kind of hard to even remember, um, but or, oh or, or maybe the, the kind of voting process itself, how you view the the real threats that were to the integrity of this election. And then what you see as things that uh, happened that were, you know, n not good or, or that maybe undermine the quality of the election versus the things that maybe perhaps surprised you at working well or kind of reinforcing um, the, the, the foundations of, of the election. Um, so for me, as somebody who's obviously, you know, focused on U.S. elections, um, especially U.S. presidential elections, I was, I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised by relatively how smoothly this election actually like went and took place. I think for me, the thing that I was most excited about though um, was a tremendous organizing around this election in comparison to the election in 2016, 2012, and in 2008. Um, just, just really exciting organizing, especially by people of color across the country. Um, the things that always bother me are going to be the long voting lines, especially in swing states um, and especially in the South and, and Black areas um, and wanting to make sure that like more people are, like get registered and get out to vote, um, that those kind of the long lines always give me pause for concern. Um, you know, well, that obviously still happened, but it, there seemed to be less of that this time. I think after like the the kind of the phase after after the election as the votes were being counted, the thing that like frightened me though um, were in places like Michigan and a few other places where Trump supporters came and legit tried to threaten the, the people who were counting the ballots. Like 
I mean, just mobs of people, right? Some praying, most shouting, yelling, recording, um, people who were spending their time counting ballots. Um, so that to me, I was, I was a bit shocked about. Megan, one of the um, unfortunate things that I think uh, has that about this election with the president continuing to just suck up so much oxygen is that I feel like we haven't had time to celebrate Kamala Harris being elected the vice oh. president. Um, and, you know, the first woman, the first black woman, the first Asian American woman. And I, I even thought about it on Wednesday next week. It's like, you know, he's still going to get more coverage than she is. Ah. And apart from what you think about Joe Biden, it's like, I feel like we haven't had that celebratory moment. And the second thing is, is thinking about Stacey Abrams and just the importance of black women to the Democratic mm-hmm. Party mobilization. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that they have had to play an oversized role in protecting this republic from itself. They're not only people that have played a role, but they do have had to have played an oversized role. And this election, I mean, it's hard to imagine that the Democrats would have those two seats that had not been for Stacey Abrams and what she's done in the last 10, 10 years. So I'm just curious kind of for you, the role of black women in this election and what you're thinking. Ah, oh, I love this question. And I'm so glad that you, in, in terms of like, like, let's spend a moment on this and highlight this and let, even with everything going on, let us not forget this. Um, yes, absolutely. I know this is a podcast, so listeners cannot see this, but it's like snapping, raising hands right now, everything to what you said, absolutely, yes. I mean, in terms of an, a, Black women, not just obviously this election, but especially this election, have been playing an outsized role. Right, like, and I do think in terms of, it, it is important for me just to say a tiny bit here that it, like, it, like in terms of like what happened before, because I think there's been so many people that are like, oh my gosh, Stacey Abrams, the the the, the grand saint patron of democracy, yes, she saved us, and it's like, uh, yes, her and others, but also we don't get to the incredible runoff situation in Georgia like we had without there being years of organizing under the radar, right? A black woman pounding the pavement, doing the work of democracy, registering people to vote, talking to people about voter disenfranchisement, the way that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have both like operated and have disenfranchised black people in Georgia and across the country, right? Like they have been doing that work and that's what it means to actually do this work. Um, and that's also in terms of like, why it sucks, and that's not the most articulate I can be as a political scientist, but I don't care, but why it sucks that we can't spend more time appreciating their accomplishments in this moment, right? Is how much space Trump and like white mob or white rioters are actually taking up. Um, But it has been so interesting that there's obviously uh, Kamala Harris, um, who is yes, right, in terms of like black, Asian American, um, and the historicness of this, right? That like, like never has there one been a woman vice president? What? Come on, y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. Shamed of yourselves, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there has never been, right? In terms of like, like Asian American and woman and black, like it's it's historic on so many levels. It's 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 way later than it should have happened. Um, and she is part of the reason why many black people, many Asian American, many people of color came out to vote for the Biden, Biden Harris ticket, 
right? Um, her like deep level of expertise, her incredible debating of Mike Pence, like, ooh, my, that was one of my favorite, one of my favorite debates. Um, Megan, a then, debate suggests that there were two people there that showed up <laughs> to have the debate. I don't know that that was exactly a debate. <laughs> this is true. Um, and then the other part, which is <laughs> people like St Stacey Abrams, Latasha Brown, who were part of what, the Georgia effort and the nationwide effort in, 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 in registering people to vote um, and in like going into this new Congress, making it look like the way that it actually is. And by like bringing so much energy like into who knew that so many young people, especially so many young people of color could be excited, right? About actually voting, phone banking, going door to door yeah. about, and then like what you see in Cori Bush as an activist and who's like, you know what, I'm gonna, mm -hmm. and then running for office, right? And then like one of the only people in in Congress, right? On, on the, in the floor of the house calling Trump uh, like, a white supremacist, like, and not, so not just registering people to vote, right? Not just on the ticket, but also speaking these hard truths that we run from. Black women doing all of that, James, all, 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 all of that. Well, well, it's funny too. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Cori Bush because they, they are now, I mean, if you look at the squad, you look at Cori Bush, they're now the ones actually trying to explain and put in context what happened on January 6th in terms of the types of threats that they have faced in public life since they've been in public life. Yes. And, and in fact, it's, it's MLK's birthday. Like, look at the sacrifices that he had to make. Look at those sacrifices yes. that, you know, like that, 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 that's just a normal part of their lives. Like they're used to that. They're used to being afraid of, of, of people attacking them and, and threatening their security. That's not new to them. Right. So they're not very yeah. surprised about it, but they seem to be the ones kind of rising to the occasion and the moral voice explaining you know, how, how to think about what happened. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be very unfair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, in terms of like what Baldwin and actually, you know, King, as we move into the holiday, actually speak about in terms of like the state of what it means to be a Black person in this country is to be derided by so many people and yet to do the work of democracy and to believe in this country and to continue to work for it to be better, right? To like actually like be the democratic kind of like fighter out there um, and have people hate you for it at the same time, right? Like that is always uh, what's like, what the heroes in parentheses of the civil rights movement have told us. And here we are, however many years later in 2021, and that still is the case, right? That Cori Bush, AOC, Jamal Brown, Ayanna Presley, right? Elon Omar, right? They are all facing threats, not just now, but they've always faced threats yeah. since they've been in office. And right now it's like one of the kind of the, the, the comparisons, which is that now there's been some of the, their white colleagues who are like facing death threats and they're like on posting on social media, like, I can't believe I'm facing these death threats. And they're like, w welcome to a day in my life. <laughs> um, yeah. Not that I want you, Lashaney, not that I want you to I mean, be, yeah. yeah. Not yeah, that no, I want exactly. you to be here with me, right? But like, right. This is part of the ugly, but you have to figure out who you are and what you actually stand for. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, a, a great place to end is uh, picking up on this point and what you said about Stacey Abrams, which is I think, unless you're a political scientist or an activist, 
I think people think it's just like easy to win an election, right? Like, oh, there are a lot of black people in Georgia and oh, of course, Ossoff and Warnock were gonna win. Like they don't know. No. It's like, it's every day, years and years and it's never done, right? Like, okay, so she got these, so so these two new senators are, are now being elected. They don't have to worry about their own fiscal security when they're in the Capitol as does everybody else. Like you, it's every day you have to show up for this fight and it's never done. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. just, in, in, in terms of like putting kind of now this election in context, it seems to me to be reinforcing that is maybe something that is a, both a good reminder, but also like a place for hope because it gives us a place to focus our efforts. Like it tells us, it gives yeah. us concrete things that we can do as citizens mm-hmm. that says we're going to still have to fight for our democracy every single day for the rest mm-hmm. of this republic's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. It's People mm-hmm. are going to have to show up and fight mm-hmm. for it. There's no like, yep. it's not black or no white and it's never going to be totally nope. That's it. That's it. This is, I mean, that's why I think one of the, you know, sometimes as many of the critiques that I can levy against the United States about the constitution, about the oftentimes slow pace and regressive pace of, of democracy in this country, but that like people like motivated people on the ground, like can literally change things in this country. Like, but you can't become complacent. The work is always, it never actually ends. Right, that I, I I believe very strongly that social movements are the engines of democracy. That I feel like the, the greatest for me, the three greatest moments of democracy over the past year, James, are one, the racial justice protest um, that took place over the spring and summer of 2020. People are like, oh my gosh, it's like democracy in action, but that's because people like were fed up and took to the streets and were like demanded to be heard by these institutions that were like, we don't want to hear you anymore. The second one is going to be the election. I never really thought that I'd be like, because I'm always like, oh my God, elections, it's just so, uh. but, the, but the election in 2020, <laughs> where, <laughs> where you have like, again, all these, especially like young people and people of color who were coming out to vote and people who had never voted before, but were like, no, I'm going to vote and we're going to, we're gonna do something different in Arizona. We're gonna try to do something different in Texas. Michigan is not going red again. Like, and you had like just this energy. And then the third one is obviously the Georgia runoffs. And as you mentioned in the opening of this last question, which is that like, it was not easy. Georgia does have a lot of black people, but the reason why like, so so do all of the Southern states. What the Southern states also has is a deep history of white violence and black voter disenfranchisement to the extent, right, in which so many, there's a number of black people that do not vote, not because they don't want to vote, because they have voted before, it's taken a long time, the political process does not actually respond to them, right? So it's actually rational, right? It's actually rational for some black people in some places to actually not vote if the political system does not at all pay attention to them and does not respond to them, okay? So like, even though there's a lot of black people in Georgia, what you still had to do and what Stacey Abrams knew is that you had to like register, you had to build out a a democratic ecosystem an infrastructure of multiple organizations that coordinated together, that registered people. You had to get funders on board. You had to sell a dream, even if people thought your dream And when I say people, I am talking about the Democratic Party here. I am talking about Tom Perez. Even if some people thought that your dream was too big and was too audacious, you still had to believe because you saw another way forward, right? And what is gonna also be the case is that it's not like, oh, you know what? 
we got we got these two senators in Georgia for that are Democrat now. We're good. It's always going to be Democrat. Nah, Stacey Abrams, it's on it. Like in terms of two days later, she was like, "These are all. I'm going to lift up all the organizers, all of the groups, and they're back at it, right? Because what it means is that because if you understand right uh, uh, the the democracy and the way that government institutions have worked in the United States, you also know that the ways that like new forms um, of hierarchy become instituted, right? You, you understand that the way new ways of nativism, racism, and sexism happen. So you have to always guard against that. You can't become complacent and be like, oh, the guardrails of democracy are going to save us. What? Please stop this. <laughs> Please stop this madness, well, right? Get on it. Get involved. Yes. Anything else? Well, no, I was going to say it's like, it, it was like my... Um, when Obama was elected, I remember one of my first thoughts was, are white people going to wake up or Republicans going to wake up tomorrow and realize that we just elected a black man president of the United States? And they did, right? They, did. they woke up and they were like, uh, we're going to now fight it tooth and nail. So it's like, this is the very beginning of a very long act. This is definitely not the end of the act because now yeah. that these two, these two senators are now the incumbents, all Republicans are going to do is fight against them for the next, you know, two, four, six years, right? Because they want to win mm -hmm. back those seats. So you, they're they're going to have to work even harder. Um, and it's that battle is never over. And the other thing is, it's just how high quality some of these candidates are, the younger ones. I mean, you don't have to agree with no, their I politics know. always, mm -hmm. but just their their biographies, their the, what they've done in life, their their mobilizing activities. I think is just so super impressive. Like this is not mm -hmm. your grandfather's product party i mean this really is like a new wave it seems like to me uh-huh uh-huh um yeah no i think it's i think it's exactly true there is there's i mean I, it feels like i mean this is obviously a much longer conversation that some of us actually are having um in the field of black politics um but in terms of there seems to be kind of a changing of the guard um over the last probably about four years, honestly, James, um, in part because kind of the way that we've been oftentimes thinking about like black, what what does it mean to have black political power and what does a change actually mean? It has been a, a certain type of black politician in which Obama has is the culmination, right? Like the standout example of like, like if you do, if, if you say these things, if you form these type of coalitions, right, with white people and with white politicians and white donors, you will go this far and you can change all this, right? So there was obviously a wave of black mayors that took place in the 80s and 90s in the United States. Um, and then what people like saw Barack Obama, he achieved what we were told we never could, which he became president of the United States. And yet still, right, and yet still there was deep amounts, right, of, of, um, of racism, um, um, of disrespect. And so what has actually emerged is actually a new, a, a different type of some of the same type of kind of more moderate black politicians, but also a different type that doesn't, isn't necessarily like of the kind of the Obama lineage, but is of, of, a, of a more radical type of lineage, right? And you see that in Ayanna Presley, you see that in Jamal Brown, right? You're seeing that in Cori Bush. And we're gonna see that in many others who believe in speaking truth and like a little bit more clearly, um, who believe in talking a bit more about white supremacy um, and believe in a, 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 and who are, and whose in political in influences are different, right? And I think like that younger group right now is exciting. And we probably got some of them in our classroom, um, which is even yeah, like agree. better. So, yeah, 
Okay, I gotta go. All right, well, Megan Francis, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here, James. All right, see you later, thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Fitchduck, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.